Well, welcome to the Men's Bible Study. We are kicking off our spring semester this morning. We are so glad you are here. My name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, this semester, we have the privilege of diving into the life of Moses together. We'll talk more about why we are doing that in a second. But before we do that, just a couple things to mention. One, uh, these, by design, are designed to be your tables throughout the semester. And so we want to help you if this is your first time and you do not have a table assigned to you, we want to help you do that. So make sure that you see Pat or Summer after this. If you have not found a table, uh, what goes along with that is at your table, there is a sign-in sheet, and I already see some people filling it out. Before you leave today, please fill that out. That helps us to know who is actually here, not just in this big group, but who is actually at your table. That way we can know these are the folks in each particular table, and we can better communicate with every table leader. Does that make sense? All right. So let me pray for us. We're going to dive in. My last announcement is this. We decided that we would start at 7.05 today. We will not do that again. So our plan is to start at 7 sharp, to dive right in, and then to get you to your table uh, as quickly as we possibly can by having a, a great teaching session, enough time for that, but then also enough time for your tables. Both are very important to us, and we would even say that the tables perhaps are the most important part, okay? So, let me pray for us. Uh, if you have a Bible, get out the book of Exodus. That's where we'll begin. We will not spend our entire semester in Exodus, but most of it. So, let me pray for us. We'll get started. Father in heaven, we are so grateful uh, for the church, for the body of Christ. We are grateful uh, that you've called us to this place, first as your sons, and then second to this particular church. And we pray... Lord, that you would enable us not only to dive into the scriptures together and to see uh, how you love us and are faithful for us uh, through your son Jesus and in the life of Moses, uh, but Lord, that you would use brotherhood and community in a way that is incredibly powerful, that we might um, push up against one another and spur one another on to good works, that we might build the body of Christ and extend the kingdom. And so we pray, Lord, that you would even change us and even change our city uh, through this Bible study, that the way that we study and pray together and, and ask questions of one another, that you would grow us. And we ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2, we'll start in verse 1. We'll kind of skip around a little bit. My goal this morning is to kind of give us an introduction to why would we study Moses. We just finished a very in-depth um, exegetical study of just three chapters of Romans. Very precise, verse by verse, phrase by phrase, really trying to understand Paul's argument for what it means to not just know the gospel, but to be changed by it and to live out of it, out of that identity every day as men. So why would we totally change? Not only are we not in the New Testament anymore, uh, we're in the Old. Uh, we are not studying a letter. We're studying a story. We're studying a narrative. But what I want you to understand this morning is that you really cannot begin to understand and really 
the depths of what the gospel means without really knowing the story of Moses. The New Testament is written with the story of Moses in the background. For, the, for, for Israel, uh, for the people who wrote the Bible, the story of Moses was their story. It's the story that they grew up with, a story that they repeated over and over and over again, a story that they celebrated every single year. It was their national story. It was their heritage. And what I want you to see this morning is that as Christians, New Testament Christians, Moses' story really is our story as well. And it's our story for really two reasons. One, Moses' story is our story because we see in it God's faithfulness for his faithful servant. And this morning, I want you to begin to understand one of the themes throughout our semester is that you have not just been called, if last semester was about you being God's son, uh, this is about you being God's servant. And perhaps you've never thought of yourself that way, you've never thought of your gifts in that way, you've never thought you were qualified perhaps to be God's servant, but we're going to see that God uses ordinary men to do extraordinary things. Moses was not perfect, he was not sinless, he was a flawed man, and yet God chose him to use him to redeem his people. But the second reason why Moses' story is our story is because we will see time and time again that the story of Moses points to the story of Jesus Christ. And we'll look more in depth at, at the very end uh, of, of this morning. But it's fascinating to see that Jesus, after he rose from the dead on the road to Emmaus, he appears before his disciples. They don't recognize him. And as, they, as he begins to reveal himself, who he is, the Bible tells us in Luke that Jesus begins with Moses and all the prophets to teach them about who he was. In other words, Jesus had a Bible study after his resurrection with his disciples to teach them about who he was. And where did he begin? He began with Moses. So why study Moses? Well, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. Not only did he write these books, but he is the main character of four of them. You could argue that he is the central figure of the Old Testament. Yes, Abraham is very, very important. David, obviously, very, very important. But Moses, Moses is the one that was celebrated so often, that was part of the national story, part of the heritage. And in fact, we could say today, most of us in this room, if not all of us, know who Moses is. And that might not be because of the Bible. See, Moses is very, very popular. His life, his story... There's no doubt that you've encountered Moses, perhaps not from the Bible. Maybe that's in there somewhere, what you know of Moses. But likely, you've encountered him through movies, right? From Charlton Heston, to cartoons, to, to the latest movie with Batman as Moses. If I'm casting that, that's genius. To get Batman and make him Moses, it's going to be amazing. So there, you've seen movie after movie after movie try to tell the story of Moses, and then Moses ends up all over literature, all over philosophy, even all over politics. From Thomas Paine 
Albert Einstein, Machiavelli, my favorite quote that, that I found preparing from this actually was something along the lines of, uh, what would have been like if Moses would have brought the Ten Commandments to the U.S. Congress? Anyone know who said that? I've butchered the quote a little bit, but Ronald Reagan. So it's fascinating to see that Moses is referenced in our culture all over the place. The question this morning for you is, do you really know his story? Not, know, not just know of it, not just know the references of his story, but do you really know his story? Have you really read it for yourself? Perhaps for many of you, you've never actually read it for yourself. You've just allowed other people to tell the story to you, and I promise you, they haven't really told it accurately. And this isn't just about accuracy. What we'll find in the Bible is that the story of Moses is much more messy and much more compelling. It's a story about God's faithfulness for his faithful servant. And it's a story about this faithfulness that we will see unfold really in in four themes. And this is not exhaustive. These are not all the themes we might cover. But we will see God's faithfulness in four ways. And this is what we're going to look at this morning really briefly together. And we'll send you to your tables. Four ways that God is faithful, really covenantally, uh, for his faithful servant. And it's these four ways. First, it's God's plan. We see God's plan. God's faithfulness to his plan for his people. Second, specifically God's people. Third, God's servant. And fourth, the theme of God's son. All right, so God's plan, God's people, God's servant, and God's son. Let's look at this together, God's plan, Exodus 2, verse 1. All right, so this is Moses writing here. He says, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. And she put the child and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. As his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the rings and sent her servant woman and took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to you, go. So the girl went and called the mother's child, or the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him, and when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. Now, how many of you heard this story before? Yeah, the birth story of Moses is an incredible story, and what I want you to see this morning is we see God's plan in this story, God's amazing plan, because there's something actually going on here behind the scenes uh, that occurs in Exodus 1 that I think sometimes it gets lost on us because the story is so familiar. In Exodus 1, if you have a Bible, you can kind of look backwards with me. We are told that there is a new king in Egypt, a new pharaoh, and he does not recognize Joseph. 
who is the leader of the Israelites. He does not recognize who the Israel is or who their God is. And not only that, most importantly, he is very threatened by Israel. And so we see two very important things happen. First, Israel is enslaved by Egypt. They become Pharaoh's slaves. And you cannot um, let that get lost on you. I want you to think about all that's going on in our world today. The things that you see on CNN or Fox News, whatever it is that you watch. And you hear about these stories that are just horrific. And I want you to think about a country it's being reported on that has been enslaved by another country. That a ruthless dictator has taken an entire country and has enslaved them, robbed them of their freedom, and is forcing them to build him cities and buildings. What would you think? It's atrocity. It's horrific. It's evil. But it gets worse. Not only are these people enslaved, but the Bible tells us in Exodus 1 that they were growing by number even in their enslavement. So much so that even as slaves, Pharaoh is still threatened by them. And so he commands that every son upon his birth of Israel would be killed. What do we call that in today's world? We call that genocide. We call that genocide. You cannot let the familiarity of the story cause you to allow these things to get lost on you. I mean, right out of the gate in Exodus 1, we have genocide and we have slavery. We have some of the most horrific atrocities known to our world. Things that are happening today that you and I would say, that is not right. There must be justice done. That is what is happening here in Exodus 1. That is what is happening to the people of Israel at the story of Moses' birth. And so just like it is today, it's the same then. When we hear stories like that, when we see the news report on something like Boko Haram or the terrorist attacks in Paris. So often people will see that, and along with where's the justice, people say, where's God? If God is all-powerful, if God is all-knowing, if God has some plan for the world, for us, how is this His plan? How would He allow this to happen? That is exactly what is going on in the beginning of the book of Exodus. God's people struggling. They're struggling through this horrific atrocity. And we will see them struggle with God's sovereignty, God's plan throughout their exodus. Even after this amazing rescue, this amazing deliverance, as they wander through the wilderness, they will struggle. In the midst of famine, amidst the hunger, thirst, they will say, God, where are you? God, how would you let this happen? God, how is this your plan? But this morning, what I want you to see in Moses' birth is that God does have a plan. And he is in every single detail, whether we like it or not, and whether we know it or not. A few things I want to point out to you in Moses' birth. 
The first is the story that when the woman conceived and bore a son, and she saw that the fine child, she hid him for three months. And when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket. She put pitch on it. In other words, she made a little tiny boat. And she put Moses in the water. And she let him go. Now what's amazing about this is that if you know anything about what Pharaoh said and commanded to kill every single son of Israel. Exodus 1 verse 22, it says, Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. But you shall let every daughter live. Pharaoh meant the Nile to be a river of death. And yet, what we see in Moses' birth is it became a river of life. This uh, amazing detail that, again, is so important to see that what was meant for death, God used for life in a most miraculous way. Again, I want you to not let this get lost on you. I want you to think about this. Uh, Many of you are fathers here. Put yourself in the shoes if you are a family with a threat of genocide, what would you do? How would you protect? You have a son, and you know that this dictator has made a command that your son must be put to death. What would you do? How would you hide him? No doubt your wheels would be turning. You'd be trying to figure out what to do. And this story is amazing. They, they put him in a boat made out of a basket and pitch, and they put him in the Nile. And let them float away. Would you do that? Now the Bible tells us that they don't just do that, but his sister, it says, stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. So they, they put him in the mud, and at least they put someone there to make sure, okay, well, where's he going? <laughs> but it's amazing that they would do this. Yet God is in every detail. What is more amazing is just downstream. Someone very important is bathing. It's Pharaoh's daughter. I want you to think about the timing that would have taken for Pharaoh's daughter just at this right time to decide I'm going to go with my court down to bathe at the river. And the timing. Okay, well, we are finally going to do this terrible thing that we can't imagine possibly doing, but we have no other choice. We are going to put our son in a basket and let him float away. And the timing being so perfect that this child in a basket would float just at the right time that downstream approaches Pharaoh's daughter in her court. And not only that, but we see that Pharaoh's daughter, his own daughter, recognizes that this child is Hebrew. And what does she do? She disobeys her dad. She has compassion She has this ounce of humanity in her that says, this is a child, and it's a Hebrew child. And so not only will I not allow this little Hebrew boy be put to death, but I recognize that he needs food, he needs to eat. And so who should I get to feed him but a Hebrew? Well, I need a Hebrew to nurse this child, and who gets to do that? Moses' own mother. 
Moses' own mother becomes the nursemaid of Moses. And so the first, well, we don't know how long, but likely a couple years of his life, he's being brought up by his own mom under the protection of Pharaoh without his knowledge because of Pharaoh's daughter. God is in every single detail and he has a plan. This story is incredible. It's almost unbelievable for a reason because God is in every single detail. And here's my question for you this morning as men. Do you believe that God is sovereign? That's the first question. And in many ways, it is designed to be a very theological question. Some of you this morning immediately answer that and say, absolutely, yes. Some of you this morning maybe wrestle with that, even just on a theological level. But I want you to get past just theology. I want you to start there. But do you believe God is sovereign in every aspect of your life? Do you believe he has a plan? Is he in every detail? And if that were true, how would that change the way that you look at him? Does that bring you to worship? Gratitude? Or do you struggle with the idea of God's sovereignty in your life because if he was, it would make you angry? God has a plan. He is sovereign in every single detail. We will see that throughout the life of Moses. That really the story of Moses is not so much just the story of Moses, it's the story of God. It's the story of his faithfulness. It's the story of this amazing way that he works in the lives of his people, that he had this plan for Moses to redeem his people that began all the way at his birth, that he would make sure that this little boy was protected by using the very house and family of the man who threatened his life. That's incredible. And it takes an incredible God to do that. One of the major questions of the sovereignty of God has to do with God's allowing evil to happen. And people have struggled with that. And I want you to wrestle with that some this morning. There was great atrocity happening here. We will see similar things happen later in the course of Israel's wandering. How is it that a good God is both good and sovereign and how can bad things happen my answer to you this morning as a pastor was one, he is good, he is sovereign, and why do bad things happen? Why did he let them happen? I'm not totally sure, but I do know this. Bad things happen because of the fall, because of sin. And I also know this. You've got two options, just practically. The first is to say, well, God didn't know that a bad thing would happen, so it's not his fault. And if you find yourself this morning in that camp as a way to kind of get him off the hook, if you want to know what that's called, it's called open theism. If you ever read Letters from a Skeptic by Greg Boyd, a very popular book. Greg Boyd, though, is an open theist. He still is. And his belief is that God does not know everything that would happen, especially the evil things, and so it's not his fault. But practically, I want you to think about your life. What comfort does, you, does it give you that God does not know that you are going through pain? What comfort does it give you if God did not know that you perhaps would deal with cancer? Because if God didn't know, then he really can't do anything about it, can he? 
You see, I believe that the Bible not only teaches us that God is sovereign in every detail, and that he's in every detail, but that actually gives us great hope and great comfort. Because God knows about your pain. God also enters into your pain. And what we will see much later in the Bible is that God knew our pain so well that he sent his only son to take on our pain, to bear our pain on the cross and to rise again that we might have life. God knows what evil there is in the world. He's not unaware. He is sovereign over it, so sovereign that he sent his son to die to rise again and one day return. God has a plan. He is working his plan in every detail of your life. Do you really believe that? That's the first theme very quickly, a couple of verses. Romans 8, verse 28. We know for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those who he predestined, he also called. Those who he called, he justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. He has a plan for you. And he is working his plan in your life. But that plan does not come without hardship. 1 Peter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. All right, God has a plan. We'll speed up a little bit. Second, God's people. We learn about God's people in Exodus 2, verse 11. This is an amazing story. I'll paraphrase it a little bit, but you can kind of read along. This is after Moses has grown up. He's been raised in the house of Pharaoh, no less, in his court, uh, raised by Pharaoh's daughter. And it says that Moses has grown up and he sees what's been going on this entire time, Egypt oppressing the people of Israel, and he sees an Egypt beating a Hebrew man. What we see is Moses begin to struggle with his identity. Who am I? What is my past? He, he recognizes I am not an Egyptian. I am a Hebrew. And he sees his own people being beat down by the folks that raised him. By this man from Egypt beating down a Hebrew. And the Bible tells us in verse 12 is, He looked this way and that and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. We see that Moses, yes, is a leader. Yes, is called to his people, but he's also flawed. And we know he's flawed for a couple reasons, not just that he committed murder, and perhaps we could argue if it was justified or not, but the way that he acted afterwards, he hid. He hid. He hid him in the sand, it says, in verse 13, it says, when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? So this is what's happening. He just defended a Hebrew man from being probably killed by killing the Egyptian. And then he comes upon two Hebrews the next day, and they're fighting. He says, well, why are you fighting? And not only do they not recognize what Moses did for their good the day before, but they say, well, who made you judge over us? Who made you our leader?" In other words, what right do you have to come in here and try to fix our issue? Are you going to kill one of us just like you killed that guy? And so we see this theme begin to uh, unfold 
that Hebrew, the, the people of God tend to reject their own redemption. The people of God have a history of rejecting redemption. And we will see that throughout Moses' life as he attempts to lead them. That even though they, with one breath they are crying out, God, please rescue us, with the next breath they are saying, we want nothing to do with your rescue. And this morning you might hear that and say, I just can't fathom what that must be like. I want you to think about your life and how often you are on your knees praying that God would rescue you, and yet when His rescue comes, you say, no thanks God, I'd rather do it my way. See, we have a habit, a history, of rejecting God's redemption in our life. We would rather do it our way, and that's for a lot of reasons. One, perhaps we are prideful. That's one. Or on the other hand, perhaps we are deeply ashamed. So what is it in your past this morning? What is it that you bring to here, uh, into this table, into this room? What, what is it? What's your story? How did you grow up? What are you proud of? What are you ashamed of? How has your past shaped your present? Because we're going to see time and time again that Israel's past shapes them throughout their redemption from Israel. It also shapes Moses too. God's people have a history of rejecting redemption. Third, God's servant. I love this. As uh, Exodus chapter 2 comes to a close, it says, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. I love that last line. God knew. So this morning, our story ends the people of Israel undergoing genocide, slavery, God raising up a servant named Moses, born in incredible circumstances, hid from a dictator who wanted to see him dead, raised in Pharaoh's own house, and then fleeing Pharaoh's house to join his own people, and his own people rejected him. Where have we heard that story before? We'll get to that at the end. But we see that God has this plan, and it's to use this servant, his servant Moses. And as he hears the groans of Israel in their prayers, crying out for rescue, crying out for redemption, he is calling his servant Moses to lead his people out. He's calling a servant, a servant to be his agent of redemption. What qualified Moses for this? We'll see that Moses had very few qualities in and of himself that you would say, well, this should be the national hero of the people of Israel. And yet God chose him, and Moses would become the greatest leader that they had ever known. Their national hero, their redeemer, God used to bring redemption to his people. 
And this morning I want you to know that God has called you for that very same purpose. God has called you as a man, first to be his son, that's your identity, as one of his own. But you were not called as a man just to be his son and to hoard the gospel to yourself. But you are called to be his servant. God used his servant Moses to bring redemption to his people. And today God is using his church to bring redemption to the entire world. As a man in the church of Jesus Christ, you are called as his servant to bring the gospel to the world. Paul says it this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. That's who you are. The old has passed away and the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled to himself and gave us, that's you and that's me, the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and trusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors through Christ, God making his appeal through us. Do you believe that? Because here's the deal. God's plan was Moses. And at times, the people of God really had a hard time with that. God's plan A, and this time, in this place, in this city, is you and me. Kind of scary, huh? That's his plan. He doesn't have a plan B. His plan is to call People, ordinary men like you and me and Moses to do extraordinary things for the sake of the gospel. Not because we are extraordinary, because he is. Not because we have a good plan, because he does. Not because we have a good heritage, but because he has drawn us into the greatest heritage that the world has ever known. Not because of our social status, our pedigree, our background. He has drawn us out of darkness into his marvelous light that we might proclaim the excellencies of grace in this world. You have been called to be a servant. And finally, we see in the story of Moses, God's son, and this is where we'll end and send you on your way. Hebrews 3, uh, verse 1, if you want to turn there, so we're going to end, will become kind of a theme for us throughout this study. The writer of Hebrews is recognizing that the story of Moses is very important, but he does something with it. That will become very important for us as New Testament Christians. He says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. The story of Moses ultimately teaches us about the story of Christ. The story of another baby who was hidden from a ruthless dictator in Egypt. The story of another baby who would grow up to lead his people as their redeemer. The story of another baby who, when he grew up, his own people rejected him as their redemption. The story of the greater Moses, Jesus Christ, who would become the fulfillment of every commandment given to Moses for the people. 
who would bear our sin, our shame on the cross and rise again that we might have life. He is our national story. Not as the people of the United States of America, but the people of God. He is our hero. He is the story that we tell our children. We tell over and over again. He is the one that we celebrate every single day. Why study the story of Moses? Because in the story of Moses, we see our story and we see the story of Jesus Christ. Let me pray for you and send you to your tables this morning. Again, if you have not been assigned a table don't know where you're supposed to be, please come see us. Father, thank you so much for this study. Thank you for the story that has been shared across generation to generation to generation. And we pray, Lord, that you would be with this study. We pray that you would use it to search the depth of our hearts and who we are and our identities. That as men, you've called us out of darkness and into the light of Christ in order that we might be a part of your plan to reach the world. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.